Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder and executive director of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software. And today, we welcome somebody who is a real subject matter expert. Uh, welcome Alan Tiemann, who's a renowned attorney in the world of assessments. He works with Hans Santos in privacy and security, and also serves as general counsel to the Association of Test Publishers, which is an international organization representing the testing industry. He also takes part in ISO standards, work for the testing industry, and is a registered lobbyist before the U.S. Congress on privacy, testing, education, and employment legislation. And as you will shortly hear, he's also very knowledgeable about the world of assessments. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Well, very pleased to have you here. Uh, the way I like to start with everybody is to ask how you got into the world of assessments. So could you talk us through that? How did you join assessments? Sure. Uh, it was uh, actually a stroke of serendipity. Uh, I happened to run into someone I'd known for a little while at a, an HR conference, and he was telling me that uh, the uh, personnel testing uh, folks uh, were being challenged by potential legislation in Congress that would have banned the use of written paper and pencil integrity tests. And so that conversation led to an interview, and I was selected to be their lobbyist. And so for the following year, this was 1987, uh, for about a year, we lobbied uh, to try to prevent Congress from passing legislation that would have banned the use of written testing. Got my start in personnel testing, and that was 1987. So just checking and understand that, the, the Congress was actually proposing to ban testing in pre-employment? Yeah, uh, this was the year after uh, they had passed the Polygraph Protection Act, banning the use of polygraph in pre-employment. And so they turned their attention to the use of written tests. So if you hadn't got involved in that and uh, made that happen, we might none of us be using testing in pre-employment today. Um, yeah, that was the goal that they had in mind. And so was that the Association of Test Publishers or was that some precursor organization? It was a precursor. It was just a, a group of personnel testing folks. So they had formed the Association of Personnel Testing Publishers, APTP. And so how did you stay in assessment after that? Was that just a one-off or did you uh, get more involved? No, um, that uh, actually led to one of the companies um, had an education uh, affiliation uh, with a, a similar company. And so the following year, I was hired by that organization to do educational testing on the Hill. And so by then, APTP was still doing state testing issues or legislation being proposed in various states to ban testing. Uh, and so I was doing both the APTP work and then education work for the McGraw-Hill Education Group at the time. And so what was the arguments against testing? Why did people want to ban it? Um, I think the perception was that uh, tests were just a black box, sort of like a polygraph, uh, where the science really wasn't uh, understood. And so when you don't understand something and you think it's a, a use of something that is discriminatory, then you say, well, let's get rid of that. And 
we don't want discrimination uh, in any uh, pre-employment work without knowing the science. The people who were pushing this were adamant that it, it was just like a polygraph. So what part of our job, of course, was to educate people that, uh, about the science. And uh, that actually occurred in, in one major way by uh, the organization started working closely with the American Psychological Association. Uh, the science directorate ended up uh, getting involved and looking hard at what was going on in integrity testing and concluding that the major publishers of those kinds of tests were, in fact, adhering to the psychometric principles of the uh, joint standards. And so then I think you've really stayed in testing ever since, and uh, that's the main area you work in. What kinds of law or lobbying or other work have you done over the years? It's pretty varied, actually. I, mean, I started out doing uh, appellate litigation. I, my first nine years as a lawyer, I spent in court challenging administrative decisions or defending administrative decisions by agencies. And then when I ended up in private practice, I was doing a variety of, of things from transactional work to intellectual property issues and regulatory problems. So most of my clients over the years have tended to be companies, uh, businesses that need help on regulatory issues. And tell us about the Association of Test Publishers, because I think you were part of the founding of that and have been with them for decades. Sure. Well, I mentioned the Association of Personnel Test Publishers uh, handled that first issue in Congress and subsequent state legislative issues. And by the early 90s, a group of education publishers and clinicians, clinical testing folks, uh, used to meet uh, every year at the American Psychological Association annual conference and uh, sort of just do a checkup on what was going on in the industry. We started getting invited to those annual uh, sit-downs, and after a few years of kind of sharing war stories about what was going on in our legislative work, a couple of the folks who were running uh, that uh, more business-oriented chit-chat every year said, you know, maybe we should get involved in some of that work. That occurred on a Friday afternoon, the session that they had scheduled for that year, and Saturday, we reconvened, and a group of the leaders uh, in the education arena and clinical psychology, clinical testing, said, okay, let's join together and form the Association of Test Publishers. That was, I think, 1992. And what kinds of uh, advocacy or uh, lobbying or other kind of legal things have the ATP done over the years? Have there been any other big threats to testing or ways of opening up testing? Um, yeah, there really have been challenges. Uh, obviously, we don't try to be reactive every time, but uh, a lot of issues uh, that have come up over the years are somewhat a, a reaction to things. Again, misunderstandings of testing uh, run rampant. Uh, as you know, there are folks uh, uh, in the United States and elsewhere in the world who just think testing is a, a bad thing. And so we're constantly finding uh, issues coming up in regulatory environments, legislative environments, uh, litigation, where challenges are coming up. So we've, we've done things um, for the U.S. Department of Education uh, was looking at saying that the civil rights issues around tests needed to be redone and trying to limit the use of high-stakes tests in education. Uh, we did a major uh, effort there with the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights to try to educate them on uh, what goes on in high-stakes testing. That 
ended up actually leading to follow-up work with the Hispanic Caucus on the U.S. Congress, uh, the Black Caucus on the U.S. Congress, to uh, make sure they understand uh, what actually benefits uh, some minority populations uh, in terms of high-stakes tests. And I think that actually we've been very successful over the years in documenting to interest groups who might be uh, minority populations or special populations, the value actually of high-stakes tests uh, to those kinds of, of individuals. Uh, we've been involved in uh, working with the uh, state assessment folks in K-12 in the United States. That led to a joint effort to publish a, a set of best practices for developing and using high-stakes large-scale assessments uh, throughout a state where every student of the state at various years in the United States are tested in English and math. Those tests are usually developed by ATP members under contract with the states. Uh, so we sat down as the vendors for many of the states and worked through what happens through the entire process of item development all the way through test delivery and scoring. So that initial work was done in 2010, and we did a, a rewrite update of that whole best practices work in 2013. Uh, that's still on the uh, uh, heavily used in the states for doing all kinds of K-12 testing work. It's actually that compendium of best practices has actually been used in India for doing work on RFPs in China and doing test delivery issues. So it's actually had quite a life of uh, application of some of the best practices that we developed back for the K-12 work in other areas of testing. Uh, most recently, we, as you well know, John, we've had with the onset of GDPR and privacy laws and regulations elsewhere in the world, we've been focusing quite heavily on uh, privacy and related security issues. And as a uh, an organization, ATP has published a series of booklets and, and publications, all involving pieces of the GDPR what was in place back in, in 2018, the privacy shield between the EU and the United States, where companies in the U.S. could self-certify that they were applying adequate privacy requirements to match up to the GDPR so that transfers of, of personal information to the United States could take place. Uh, as you know, that uh, privacy shield was just recently struck down by the Court of Justice of the European Union. So there is now a whole void there of what can take place. But ATP has been producing documentation on GDPR and U.S. privacy and global privacy laws. Um, so that, that's certainly been, as far as a, a new uh, focus of work, a big, big uh, focus on things that are are trying to educate our own members on uh, what actually has to take place to meet up with these requirements on privacy. Let's come back to privacy in a few minutes, but let's just go back to this discrimination or non-discrimination issue. So, I mean, if you're involved in testing and you want to make a test fair so that it doesn't discriminate against people and you can use it in a legally defensible way for pre-employment, what do you have to do? Well, for employment, there are a set of special uh, issues that uh, in the United States, certainly the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission as part of, of the U.S. government has a set of regulations 
that were adopted basically back in 1978 that say to an employer, if you're going to use any kind of pre-employment tool to uh, analyze applicants, they have to all be non-discriminatory and you have to be able to document that. So job analysis is a critical component for uh, any business that's trying to figure out how to go about doing hiring. And remember, it's not the testing uh, organization that is doing the hiring. This is service, a testing opportunity where a business that's looking to hire will figure out either what tests they want to build and, and use uh, for their own uh, job applications, or they hire a testing organization to develop and administer those kinds of tests. But whichever situation you're in, whether it's an internal testing opportunity or as a testing organization being the vendor for a business, that process of hiring, of using tests to determine who can be selected. Uh, and remember, this is many situations, uh, you know, one job and you might have 10,000 applicants for that job. So trying to uh, make sure that you're not accused of discriminating in your process of screening and selecting somebody for that job, uh, it's a real challenge to make sure that you can document, one, that the test is measuring the job necessities, uh, job descriptions for that job, and is doing so in a valid and reliable manner. So, so basically, key things are to do some sort of job analysis or job task analysis or something to work out whether the jobs are appropriate, and then to build a test which uh, validly and reliably measures those competencies. Correct. You have to have the job analyses first uh, so that you can document that the test that's developed is actually measuring those requirements. And how about in the more sort of educational academic area? What, what do people need to do there to make sure that their tests are not discriminatory and are justifiable? A little different uh, set of criteria um, that apply in, in non-employment areas, but say for clinical issues or health screening, there's issues there. Uh, in the United States, we have uh, health records laws, uh, HIPAA and HITECH, where the same sort of parameters of making sure that you're keeping track of data and using all of the proper protections to ensure that records of individuals that might have health information in them are being adequately protected. So that can, there can be discrimination involving the testing of individuals with uh, disabilities or individuals with health issues for just say a normal certification or licensure situation the goal is still to be able to document the validity and reliability of the assessment that's being used you still want to be able to document if you're a, a certification program that the mechanisms you put in place and the test or tests that are being used to measure the qualifications, competence, mastery, whatever the, the case may be, but lead to the certification as the program, you want to be able to document that you're running a program that is free of bias and discrimination. That makes sense. So essentially, to avoid being taken to court for a bad test, make sure that you have very clearly defined what the test is supposed to measure and what the job analysis is for employment, and then make it valid and reliable and, and fair. Right. And if it's not a job situation, you still want to be able to show that you have uh, are measuring what is intended to be measured, the mastery or competency uh, of an individual. 
No, I think that's really key, and I think it applies outside the U.S. just as much as inside the U.S. So, so let's go back to privacy. There's a lot of stuff around in the press and various other places about online or remote proctoring, taking pictures of people at home while they're taking tests. What the, the is that fair? Is is that appropriate from a privacy point of view? What's your view on that? What does a testing organization need to do to be able to do that fairly? Well, that's a loaded question, John. Um, as you know, the, uh, a lot of remote proctoring uh, started well before uh, the pandemic. So this is not completely an outgrowth of COVID, but the focus on surveillance of somebody taking a test on their computer at home uh, has certainly brought the full force of attention and social media attention on the fact that somebody's being observed in, uh, in taking a test. Monitoring, surveilling, proctoring somebody taking a test is not a new concept. It's been done in test centers for decades. There certainly uh, have been innovations in how even proctoring is being done in test centers with the advent of ways to surveil uh, to make sure that a test taker is not looking at uh, extraneous materials that they've brought into the test center or using a, a hidden cell phone to access the internet to find answers. I mean, there's all those problems that are not really COVID related, but now with the advent of almost uh, hard pressed to do a lot of in-person testing, the focus has been much more uh, concentrated on at home using one's personal computer to take a test and how do, if you're dependent on trying to ensure that the level playing field for all test takers is there, that some people are not cheating and taking a spot or getting an outcome that is detrimental to everyone else taking the test, the program has a responsibility to individuals to try to ensure that everyone is being tested and scored on the merits of what they know. So it's a real problem for the industry right now. Uh, the technology is not new, but it is not uh, as mature in many ways as it, it probably will be uh, over the next period of years. I think technology advances will continue to improve what is being done with, uh, with online remote proctoring or monitoring. If you're talking about using AI uh, engines to do a post-test analysis of the test taker to determine if somebody might have been looking away down at a cheat sheet or down at a, a book to get help in, in taking the test. Uh, there are, are algorithmic software tools that are available to do that. Doing a check of how long somebody is taking to answer questions and comparing that to a benchmark um, is another process that has been developed. I mean, there's a host of things that are technology-related that have been developed. I think some of them are going to be continue to be challenged here in this time frame of people feeling like it's unwarranted to have that kind of intrusion. Clearly, from a privacy perspective, as you your question articulates, having someone viewing you on your home screen, laptop camera, is uh, certainly got a privacy implication to it. But the question is, what's justified on the part of the test sponsor or testing administrator organization or a vendor who's providing the uh, surveillance, uh, proctoring, monitoring service, what's legitimate to ensure 
that the scoring outcomes of a testing event are in fact uh, accurate and not giving someone who wants to cheat an opportunity and advantage to gain an outcome that others are not getting. That obviously justifies, I think, for many testing organizations that they are able to take some steps to ensure the level playing field of every test taker in their program. I think that's a good summary. And I I think we can see the example of a scandal that's happened in Pakistan where pilots were allowed to uh, admit or send somebody else to take tests for them. And then there was a plane crash as an example of how test security is really important. Yeah, you, you focused on another ingredient of that that I didn't mention, which is uh, ensuring that somebody isn't an imposter taking the test. Uh, and that leads to yet another area of surveillance or, or attempting to identify that the person who registered for the test then in fact shows up to take the test and is the person uh, whose score uh, is uh, relevant to the outcome of a certification or a license. Uh, you certainly don't want an imposter coming in. And if you don't have a process in place to verify the identity uh, or at least match the person who registered, uh, whether that's through a, a photo ID or some other mechanism to ensure that the person then who shows up to take the test or comes online at an online test is that person. You run the risk of, of the uh, KC site where somebody has sent an imposter to take the test, received a, a license, and then ended up buying a plane who really wasn't qualified. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, one area that I know that you uh, do quite a lot of work and give quite a lot of people advice on is candidate agreements, the agreements that you get a test taker to sign up to before they take the test. Could you share a bit of best practice on that? What what should people include in those kind of agreements? Well, I've been a big advocate of test taker agreements uh, well before all of this uh, new novel coronavirus problem emerged, John. But I have to say, under the, the pandemic environment, uh, it's even more critical that uh, an organization focus on and use a test taker agreement. These agreements are the mechanism by which you can virtually contractually ensure that every test taker that's taking your test is aware of and agrees to the terms of that testing event. And so this covers everything from protecting your IP, testing uh, items, to ensure that people know they can't copy them, that they can't distribute them, and can't use them. So whether that's uh, you know for purposes of helping somebody else cheat or sharing that information with a brain dump uh, so that others get access to items. It's real important, obviously, if you're the developer of the items or the testing sponsor who has a pool of items, uh, you don't want to be rewriting, spending the money to rewrite items that have been exposed inappropriately. And now the test is really the validation uh, of the scores of the test can't be guaranteed anymore because those items have been exposed. So protecting IP is a big issue. Um, ensuring that uh, test takers know what rights they have in terms of getting access to um, the score results, to being able to challenge the score results. And now and with privacy being such a key uh, part, you want to tie that test taker agreement into your privacy policy, uh, into all of the pieces of things, including now what rights are present and what um, requirements you have 
I'm the test taker for allowing surveillance to take place, to acknowledging that in order to get that level playing field I spoke about, the test takers realize that if they want to have a level playing field environment, they have to give up the right to challenge the uh, surveillance of, of them as a, a test taker. Getting that agreement, whether it's express consent or I've taken today with privacy concerns, it's almost more of a legitimate interest analysis for a testing organization than it is getting express consent to ensure that you get both. I like to write the testing agreement, test taker agreement in such a way that it's providing both express consent and an acknowledgement that the testing organization has a legitimate interest in uh, the terms and conditions that are contained in the agreement. Well, that makes sense. So that's really helpful. And uh, certainly I'd encourage uh, people to think about uh, test taker agreements, both from a privacy point of view and an IP point of view and other points of view. Can we end on one uh, other controversial issue, uh, particularly in the US at the moment? There's a lot of anger around some of the uh, university admission exams, claiming they're unfair, universities going test optional. Is that all the test's fault? What's your view on that controversy? Wow. Um, Another loaded question, John. You're Doing really well this morning. Um, well, admissions uh, testing is a, a bit of a special circumstance situation. I fear that a lot of the unhappiness that is being expressed about admissions testing ignores the, the reason why admissions testing came about to begin with, standardized testing. You know, back in the 1800s in the United States, the Ivy League schools used a an interview process, essentially, to decide who got in. And so if you went into an interview with somebody at Yale or Harvard and you were a legacy uh, person whose parents or father had gone to the school, you were in. If you were a black individual coming in to interview, you probably didn't get in. And so it was every decision was a subjective decision. And when the criticisms of that process in the Ivy League schools got to be uh, severe, they helped develop the uh, first standardized uh, admissions test. The SAT came into being precisely to provide an objective way for every applicant to be evaluated for admission. And while it was not uh, ever the only tool that was used, there still were grades to evaluate and interviews to be had, but every school then had an independent, neutral, objective measure of test scores to be able to look at. Today, it seems like um, all that's been forgotten and people are criticizing the standardized tests uh, for being racially biased or not representing uh, what's really important and what's being learned. I mean, testing gets blamed for a lot because we're the messenger of the information. Uh, In fact, the tests that are done right and well are delivering meaningful information to the user. And I don't think most people would really rather have decisions made by subjective observation than by something that is objective. That's being lost in the whole debate. But yes, there is a critical concern being expressed. There are institutions of higher learning uh, in the United States and I think elsewhere that are considering the change to ignore or not require tests and ignore that opportunity to get that kind of objective information about candidates for admission. 
That makes perfect sense and is, I think, a good way to end this podcast. Alan, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. We're very pleased to have had you. Thank you, John. I enjoyed the opportunity to chat with you. As always. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at questionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next time for another exciting podcast discussion. Mm-hmm.